Hello and welcome to episode number four of the JS Bach Files. For this episode, we're taking a look at some of Bach's secular cantatas. Beginning with his stay at the court of Weimar, or possibly earlier, Bach composed secular cantatas throughout his career, usually written for special secular occasions, for example, birthday celebration for friends, associates, or royalty, or to mark other official events. We know that upon arriving at the court of Weimar, Bach had both the desire and the opportunity to study Italian scores as never before. Many of these were instrumental works, for example, concertos by Vivaldi or Albinoni and others, some of which he was to make arrangements of. But he also took a more concentrated look at Italian operas and cantatas, and we see the fruits of that study more directly in the secular cantatas, some of which he even subtitled Drama per Musica than in the sacred ones. We'll take a look first at the Hunt Cantata, BWV 208. As usual, using the English translations by Francis Brown, the long title is, What Pleases Me is Above All the Lively Hunt. This was probably composed in 1713 at Weimar for the birthday of Duke Christian of Saxe Weisenfels on February 23rd of that year. The libretto by Weimar court poet Zalamo Frank, Bach's first known collaboration with that author, is based on mythological characters in an allegorical setting typical of a number of these secular cantatas. The work is richly scored. Bach had at his disposal an unusually large and colorful orchestra, one of the advantages of working at a well-heeled court, although he parceled those sounds out carefully, going more for a variety of colors and the various movements rather than overwhelming sonorities for the most part. The work is a fairly long one, longer than many of his sacred cantatas designed for liturgical use, and contains 15 numbers. We'll sample a few of them. Although it may once have featured an introductory instrumental movement, the cantata in its received form begins with a seco recitative by Diana, the goddess of the hunt, sung by a soprano who sets the scene. She says, What pleases me is above all the lively hunt. Before the goddess of dawn shines, before she dares to appear in the sky, the arrow has already hit its target. It's a typical recitative in the Italian style. You notice for the secular cantatas, the harpsichord rather than the organ is the continual instrument of choice, providing along with the cello the harmonic underpinning for the vocal. And, although this is an early example of Bach's secular cantatas, maybe even the earliest, and one might assume that he was just now beginning to get a handle on the Italian style, the opening recitative shows that Bach was unwilling to simply parrot a perfunctory Italian recitative style. This one, for example, shows quite a bit more flexibility than innumerable Italian examples, and even interrupts the natural speech-like flow, which is, after all, the main function of sicko recitative in a musical drama, to indulge in some brief melismas and, at the end, some actual melodic activity, however modest, against an unusually active cello part. It's a boisterous, confident recitative, but then Diana is no shrinking violet. Was mir behagt, ist nur die Oh, 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 oh,
Diana's first aria follows, Hunting is the God's Delight, after a brief but spirited introduction by the orchestra, brimming with horns and horn calls. Hunting is the God's Delight, hunting suits heroes. Out of my way, my mocking nymphs, out of Diana's way. It's not just the horns sounding their distinctive calls, of course. Diana herself is just as preoccupied with those rousing fanfare-like motives, while the trills and rapid passages in general suggest the exuberance of the hunt. It's all rather jolly, although Diana transitions briefly to angry mode, and the harmony goes with her, of course, as she warns the mocking nymphs to clear a path. <laughs> sung by a tenor, now comes on the scene, complaining in a recitative that Diana is so distracted by hunting that she no longer pays him any attention. We'll jump to Endymion's aria in which he continues his lament in more lyrical form. The text states, Will you no more take pleasures in the snares that love sets? There, once people are caught by their desire, they care for love and pleasure in their bonds. A word about the performance here, most notably the way in which the continual part is handled by the harpsichordist. This recording is by the Berlin Chamber Orchestra, conducted by the famous tenor Peter Schreier, who also sings the role of Endymion. It's important to remember that for most Baroque music, the continual part is written as no more than a bass line, sometimes more active as it is here, sometimes less, and it's up to the chord-producing instrument, usually a harpsichord at this point, to interpret the harmonic structure and fill in the chords above the bass line, aided by the composer's strategically placed numbers and symbols, which help the harpsichordist interpret the chords. Exactly how the harpsichordist plays these chords and what he or she may or may not add to them in terms of melodic or rhythmic embellishment is generally up to the performer, directed to some extent by the conductor, of course. In this recording, the harpsichordist, who is realizing the continual part, is quite active, almost boisterously active at times, in adding melodic or rhythmic details to what is indicated in the score. Was that done originally in Bach's day? Almost certainly, but we have relatively little hard evidence about the exact nature of all those semi-improvised additions, so many modern continual players tend to be rather conservative in their realizations rather than be accused of going overboard. Is less better or is more better? That's hard to say. It depends on the mood of the music and exactly what it is that the harpsichordist is doing. In this case, the performer is fairly active, whereas in some other recordings, you may hear a more conservative player who does less noticeable filling in. One is not necessarily, by definition, better than the other, 
but don't be surprised if you hear different recordings of these cantatas and other works that seem to differ noticeably from one another. Okay, back to the music. We'll hear a little of Endymion's first aria, surprisingly sensitive and lyrical, given the busy cello line that accompanies it. This is followed by a recitative shared by Diana and Endymion, in which she patiently explains to him that, yes, she still loves him, but right now she's occupied with preparing for the birthday celebration of the Duke, or our dear Christian, as she refers to him. With surprisingly little fuss, Endymion jumps on board and says, Then grant to me, Diana, that with you I may join and kindle a joyous offering. And at that point they break into their cheerful little duet, mostly singing together harmoniously, but occasionally echoing each other's phrases back and forth. Singing, yes indeed, ya ya, let us bring our flames along with our best wishes and joy. We'll listen in at the end of the shared recitative and write a little bit into the duet. Dass ich mich mit dir itz und verbinde und an ein Freudenopfer zünde. Ja, 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 Following this charming little duet, Pan, a god of the forest and a bass, makes an appearance and launches into a short recitative, expressing his desire to join in in celebrating their great Duke Christian. We'll bypass that and jump to Pan's aria. Accompanied by a couple of oboes who provide the instrumental introduction and are active in accompanying the voice throughout, this aria has both a unique sonority and a certain gravity lacking in the earlier arias, befitting, I suppose, a god of Pan's stature. The text is, A prince is the Pan of his country, 
Just as the body without the soul cannot live nor move, so is that country a grave for the dead that is without its head and prince, and in this way is lacking the best part. Now, Pelez is introduced, a soprano and goddess of shepherds and flocks, and who, to no one's surprise, wants to join in in acclaiming Duke Christian. In a brief recitative, she says, To honor our hero of Saxony, I shall stir up joy and delight. We'll go right to her aria, Sheep May Safely Graze, one of the most famous that Bach ever composed, endearingly sweet because of the dual recorders playing mostly in pastoral sounding thirds and sixths which introduce the aria and return later at strategic points and its various keys with one of Bach's most compelling melodies. It's again remarkably simple and surprisingly flexible. It features several repeated notes in its first motive uh, which is repeated a step lower over a tonic pedal lending it a gentle sense of yearning and then repeats a second motive against a descending bass line. The idea of a descending bass line beneath repeated notes or a repeated phrase being one of Bach's most effective melodic strategies. The soprano's melody, when it enters, is equally beguiling, beautifully shaped, and sensitively harmonized. The text, Sheep can safely graze where a good shepherd watches over them. Where rulers are ruling well, we may feel peace and rest and what makes countries happy.
By the way, although our example only covered the first part of the aria, the middle section of the aria, in a more serious and less calmly pastoral tone, seems to suggest that achieving this sort of idyllic happiness may not be as easy as it seems, showing perhaps that what do Christian has achieved is in fact more difficult than it appears. Diana breaks this wonderful idyllic mood with a brief recitative, calling on everyone to join in acclaiming Christian in song, and the chorus, with full orchestral accompaniment, promptly does so, singing, Live, son of this earth, while Diana in the night keeps watch on the fortress of heaven, while the forests grow green, live, son of this earth. It's a jolly little chorus, rather madrigal-esque in style, with its busy imitation of mostly guileless themes, and with a more lyrical and homophonic middle section. The colorful orchestral retronello sections are particularly attractive and almost steal the show from the choral voices. The next duet aria features yet another unique sonority, with solo violin as the obligato instrument, as Diane and Endymion join together, further developing the Son of the Earth theme. Enchant us both, you rays of joy, and adorn the heavens with diamond jewelry. May Prince Christian feast on the loveliest roses, freed from sorrow. The constant, mostly arpeggio-based motion of the violin guarantees that the momentum never flags and the voices combine pleasantly, if somewhat predictably, with an appropriate, if slight, darkening of the harmonies at the mention of the prince being freed from sorrow. Palos returns to the scene for her final aria, introduced by a famous cello introduction, which we heard to better effect in cantata number 68 in the last episode. The promise suggested by this sprightly cello introduction and subsequent cello accompaniment is not upheld as effectively in this aria, which is altogether more mundane and less impressive than Palos' first aria, 
and the text provides no help here. While the flocks rich in wool through this widely honored field are joyfully driven, long live the hero of Saxony. Sorry by Pan follows, rather predictably at this point, another vivacious, if rather peculiar, homage to the Duke. You fields and meadows, appear and show how green you are. Shout out Vivat. As many commentators have suggested, this movement has a simple dance-like quality with multiple repetitions of a dotted rhythmic figure in 3-8 time. It's as simple harmonically as it is melodically and rhythmically, but in the middle section, the key turns to the relative minor key, Hardly an unusual ploy in a da capo aria, but, as suggested by Julian Mincham in one of the many excellent commentaries on the Bach Cantatas, which is once again available on the BachCantatas.com website, this shift in key may be somewhat out of place, since the text at that point states, May the Duke live in blessing and peace. Is Bach slyly editorializing at this point? It's unlikely, of course, and although Bach was as sensitive to the text as any composer, even in his lighter, celebratory, secular cantatas such as this one, the need for musical variety makes its own demands, and a change on key in the middle section of an aria is usually one of them. For the final chorus, the hunting horns make a reappearance in a somewhat more stately context, and the chorus, singing primarily in a homophonic texture, all voices in the same or similar rhythm, is both refined and varied. As in the previous chorus, the diverse colors provided by the orchestral ritornellos may be the most interesting aspect of the movement. Thank you. 
It's difficult for a modern audience to summon up much interest in a cantata text that is as obsequious as this one, and given the circumstances behind the origin of many of the other celebratory secular cantatas by Bach, it should come as no surprise that several other cantata texts of this sort fall into the same category. Still, one has to be reasonably impressed by the scope of this work, probably his first secular cantata, and the musical variety contained in it. We turn now to a couple of secular cantatas composed in Leipzig. The first is, in English translation, Be Still, Don't Chatter, better known as the Coffee Cantata, frequently dubbed as a burlesque, along with the so-called Peasant Cantata, which we'll look at after this. Perhaps the most popular and operatic, in a comic opera sense, of Bach's secular cantatas, the Coffee Cantata was written for an event by the Leipzig Collegia Musicum, for which Bach served as musical director, probably at Zimmermann's popular coffee house in 1734. Coffee itself was all the rage in the city at this point, and librettist Christian Friedrich Henrici, better known as Pickender, decided to strike while the iron was hot. This cantata uses a smaller orchestra than the Hunt cantata, just string orchestra and a solo flute, but it is nevertheless as colorful a work as Bach ever composed. The cantata opens with a cheerful recitative in which the narrator, a tenor, introduces the scene and the two main characters, Herr Schlendrian and his daughter, Leiskin. The narrator says, Keep quiet, don't chatter, and hear what's going on. Here comes Herr Schlendrian with his daughter, Leiskin. He's growling like a honey bear. Hear for yourself what she has done to him. Schweig stille, nicht und höret. Was it's und Geschicht, da kommt Herr Schlendrian mit seiner Tochter Liesken hier. Er brüht ja wie ein Zeidelbär. Hört selber, was sie ihm getan. The second movement is a bass aria sung by Schlendrian himself, featuring short, simple phrases with more direct and obvious repetition than would normally be the case in one of Bach's more elevated sacred cantatas. This almost studied simplicity of style is frequently thought of as an example of Bach sampling the so-called gallant style of the period. Schlendrian sings, Don't we have with our children a hundred thousand muddles? What always every day I say to my daughter Liskin goes in one ear and out the other. In 
the recitative that follows, the father warns the girl that she must give up her coffee, which is constantly drinking. She replies that she must have coffee three times a day, or she'll be like a dried-up piece of goat meat. Du böses Kind, du loses Mädchen, ach, lang ich meinen Zweck, tu mir den Kaffee weg. Herr Vater, seid doch nicht so scharf, wenn ich des Tages nicht reinigen Schälchen Kaffee trinken muss, so bin ich ja zu Liskin then launches into a surprisingly serious, given the subject matter, an elegant little lament with a lovely flute obligato in which she describes how heavenly coffee tastes, lovelier than a thousand kisses, smoother than muscatel wine, and how she must have it every day. In the lengthy recitative dialogue that follows, the father threatens the daughter with all of the things he will take away from her if she doesn't give up coffee. For example, she won't be going to any more weddings, she can't go out walking, she won't get the latest fashions, and there'll be no gold or silver ribbon for her hat. But she's unfazed. That's fine, she responds. She can do without all those things as long as she can still have her coffee. Wenn du mir nicht den Kaffee lässt, so sollst du auf kein Hochzeitsfest auch nicht spazieren gehen. Ach ja, nun lasset mir den Kaffee weg. Da hab ich nun den kleinen Affen. Ich will dir keinen Fisch, mein Gott, nach Itzger weiter schaffen. Ich kann dich leicht dazu verstehen. Du sollst auch nicht ans Fenster treten und keine Zehn vorübergehen. Her father then sings a simple little aria in which he bemoans the fact that girls with obstinate minds are not easily won over. Die von harten Sinnen 
von harten Sinnen sind nicht leichter zu gewinnen. But Schlendrian has a trick up his sleeve, and in the next recitative, he springs it. He informs her that if she doesn't give up coffee, she must get used to the fact that she'll never have a husband. Lieskin appears to assume he's bluffing at first, but he swears it's true. At that point, she immediately backtracks. If it means she won't have a husband, then, she announces, coffee will remain forever untouched. I won't drink it at all. To which her father responds, fine. Then you'll have a husband. Liskin then sings another rather attractive, seemingly heartfelt little aria with a perky little orchestra introduction, in which she implores her father to go out that very day and arrange a husband for her. A husband, she says, that's just right for me. recitative that follows, the narrator explains that the father then goes out to look for a husband for his daughter, but Liskin lets it secretly be known that no suitor of mine should come to the house unless he himself has promised, and it is written also in the marriage contract, that I shall be permitted to make coffee whenever I want. The cantata closes with a clever little trio, one not without its subtle touches, made up of Schlendrian, Liskin, and the narrator, and sometimes joined by other voices in some recordings, which announces the moral, The cat does not leave the mouse. Young ladies remain coffee addicts. 
The mother loved her cup of coffee. The grandmother drank it also. Who can blame the daughters? the distinct feeling that Bach derived a great deal of personal pleasure from writing this cantata. And for people who think of Bach, the composer, only as aloof and scholarly, cantatas like this make a nice corrective. The final secular cantata we're going to look at is a late one, in fact, one of the last secular cantatas. It is Cantata 212, BWV 212, the Peasant Cantata, the English translation by Francis Brown at thebachcantatas.com website is we have a new overseer or sometimes translated as governor the occasion for this composition was the appointment in 1742 of the leipzig chamberlain karl heinrich von dieskau as the provost or ruler of villages in the vicinity of leipzig to celebrate this and dieskau's birthday a celebration was held in one of the villages featuring fireworks and the performance of Bach's cantata the text was once again by Pickender, himself a government employee. Pickender tailored this specifically to his audience by writing the text in an Upper Saxon dialect, while Bach, on two occasions in this cantata, quotes popular tunes of the day that would have been familiar to his audience. And typical of cantatas celebrating a particular royal personage, there are plenty of complaints about the local pastor and particularly the tax collector, but nothing but praise for the new ruler. The cantata begins with an unusual sinfonia or overture with a split personality. The opening presents a series of simple and cheerful dance melodies, but then we veer into a passage that is surprisingly grim and austere, even ominous, hardly befitting an obviously comic work. But then the music passes again back to a simple village melody. Does this involve a little self-mockery, perhaps, or at least a touch of irony? Bach was known as a profound composer, perhaps overly so, and this was, in a sense, a weighty occasion. When the music detours into this somber passage, the listener has to wonder, is this to be a serious work after all? But then the shift in style back to a simpler, more popular idiom quickly makes it clear that this entertainment will simply be good-natured fun.
The opening duet between the two main characters sets the scene in its jaunty two-part writing, its frisky tempo, and Pickender's silly lyrics, which can't seem to keep their mind on any one thing for very long. The text reads, We have a new governor, or overseer, as our chamberlain. He gives us beer that goes right to the head. That's the simple truth. The parson may be always cross. Musicians, get ready quick. Mickey's smock is already shaking, the giddy little thing. After a short recitative in which our young hero starts flirting with a heroine who is none too quick to succumb to his charms, the young lady sings a simple but charming aria that is probably better than the text deserves. As usual in this style, the phrases are very short and there's a lot of repetition. The text reads, Ah, it's a bit too enjoyable when a couple gets really friendly. Oh, there's a buzzing in the guts, just as if fleas and bugs in a crazy swarm of wasps were annoyed with each other. After a quick little recitative in which the young man complains bitterly about how the local tax collector keeps slapping new land taxes on them, he sings a little aria bemoaning the same situation more lyrically. Ah, Mr. Tax Collector, don't be so hard with us poor peasants. Leave us our skin. Eat up the cabbage like the caterpillars to the bare stalk. That should be enough. Ach, Herr Schösser, geht nicht gar zu schlimm. Mit uns armen Bauersleute dünn. Ach, Herr Schösser, geht nicht gar zu schlimm. Mit uns armen Bauersleute dünn. Schon vor unsere Haut. Schon vor unsere after a brief recitative praising the new master, our heroine sings a surprisingly serious, even elegant aria, which borrows from an older, probably Portuguese melody that other composers have appropriated as well. Bach makes it quite clear with this music, as if the text wasn't enough, that the young lady is a more serious and refined character than her erstwhile bumpkin boyfriend, but the text is still basically just another paean to the new governor. Our excellent dear Chamberlain is a pleasant man with whom no one can find fault.
After another recitative in aria complaining about the tax situation, the young man chimes in with a recitative in praise of the new chamberlain's wife. And our gracious lady is not at all haughty, he sings. She's made of rough wood like us. She talks with us just as if she were one of us. And he goes on and on in much the same vein. But he's not done with complaining, as he sings another simple folk-like aria. Fifty dollars of ready cash for a feast without drink is something that seems tough, even if they tossle my hair. But what's gone is gone. It's possible somewhere else to save twice as much. Our young lady once again shows her more refined status with another elegant aria with an equally refined flute obligato part. Now that the new governor is in charge, she sings, the village should be as tender and sweet as pure almonds. In our community, there should be nothing today but an abundance of blessings. The boyfriend reacts to this performance by commenting in his recitative that it's a bit too refined for his tastes and launches into a short aria of his own based on a well-known drinking song, also in honor of their new chamberlain. He sings, May ten thousand ducats be taken by the chamberlain every day. May he drink a good glass of wine, and may it agree with him. But the young lady upbraids him for his crudity and responds with a lovely little aria, the warmest and most emotional of the entire cantata. The text, Give us, fair one, many sons with charming figures 
and let them grow up well. A young man now agrees that his song was probably a little too crude, so he vows to do better by singing a town tune that he knows. This one was a favorite of Bach's, and he used it elsewhere as well. The text says, May your growth be steady and laugh with delight. The goodness of your heart has prepared the field for you in which you must flourish. intervening recitative and aria that basically suggests that now would be a good time to head off to the tavern to continue the celebration, we close with another famous tune, one of the most famous examples of Bach's simpler folk-like styles. As the singers sing, we are off now to the tavern where the bagpipes drone, and we should shout with joy as we go, long live Herr Diskau and his family, may he be blessed with what he desires and all that he can wish for himself.
I'm sure that Bach's use of popular tunes of the day and his own simplified musical idiom no doubt delighted most of his audience. We can only assume, or perhaps hope, that the new Chamberlain and his wife were equally charmed with this infectious but largely unsophisticated music. But Bach, at age 57, was no neophyte in the business of pleasing royalty and entertaining the aristocracy, so we can only assume that he was quite aware of what would be appropriate for his audience. With our look at the peasant cantata, we leave all of the Bach cantatas behind and, in the next episode, we'll begin our consideration of Bach's concertos.